Well, it is very good to be uh, back with you and recognize so many uh, faces, smiling faces. And uh, I'm amazed that one of your dear number told me what an excellent memory I had for names. I have to say, I feel my memory for names is pretty awful. But uh, anyway, it's very good to uh, see many who I remember by name, some who I don't remember by name, but I'm sure you won't mind reminding me of your name. I bring very warm greetings from uh, Plymouth. It was very nice yesterday to leave the overnight deluges that we've been having and come back to find it's warm and sunny still. But I fear that I might be bringing uh, weather which perhaps won't be to your liking. But anyway, I've got here first. So, um, but anyway, we can know good days and times together. Good to have fellowship in the gospel. You're much in our prayers down in Beacon Park. It's always good to see representatives uh, of uh, Hailsham, even if they come in another guise, uh, at the back there to visitors in Plymouth. And we're thankful that we serve the same God and that we know the same promises and we enjoy and revel in the same blessings. Well, I was wondering, of course, as you would expect, what could I uh, bring from the Lord's Word? And I did think, because uh, one of your number and myself, we sometimes use these three words. They're recorded. I will refer to them in the Old Testament. It's in the experience of Gideon with his 300. And he has just uh, been given by God a remarkable victory over the Midianites. And now he has to go and he has to defeat and chase the Midianites. And it's recorded that because, of course, how much sleep he had had, we could try and work that out, but not for now. But he nonetheless had to carry out the commission he was given. And the scriptures tell us he was faint, yet pursuing. He knew something of the weakness of the flesh. He knew something, perhaps, of the distraction of the mind. But he had been given work to do. And he was going to continue with the Lord's help faint yet pursuing. But, you know, there is a similar in the New Testament. And I have preached on this before. And I always feel a little bit guilty preaching on texts that I've preached on before. Not here, I don't think. But I once read from Mr. Spurgeon, and what better authority than this, that if a sermon is worth preaching once, it's worth preaching twice. So <laughs> I get around to preaching it three times one day. And a dear friend who I know much and love much in the gospel, and he stays with me, and I know he comes to visit you each year, Mr. Graham Tutor once said to me that if you enjoy preaching a sermon, then you can preach it again. So I enjoy preaching this sermon. It does good to my soul, full of encouragement, and I trust it will be for you too. And the text is from the second scripture reading that we read. It's verse 48 of Mark chapter 6. He saw them toiling in rowing. He saw them toiling in rowing. Toiling. That's a Greek word. It speaks of labor, toilsome labor. It speaks of exhaustion. It's exacting. And toiling in rowing. They had been rowing for a long time. This wasn't at all what they expected. And I'd like to, as time permits to uh, consider this under seven headings. And because I've uh, had time to prepare this more than once, all these headings begin with the letter C. So if that's helpful, I'll be very grateful. If it's not helpful, but please don't think I'm trying to be clever, but it's helpful to me. I trust it will be helpful to you. 
seven heads, and the seven are these. The disciples were, first of all, constrained to go. We could say constrained to row, but I'm going to say constrained to go. Secondly, they were constantly in Christ's sight. He saw them, we read. Thirdly, they were commended to God by Christ. He was in prayer. Fourthly, they were conscious of their weakness. I remember the first time I realized what it means, the fourth watch of the night. It was uh, such that I have never forgotten it since. And when sometimes we may feel we're faint yet pursuing or faint or growing weary. Remember Galatians 6, grow not weary in well-doing, for in due time we shall reap if we faint not. And when perhaps we feel we're fainting, perhaps we feel we're in the fourth watch of the night, we can remember this account. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to them. But sorry, fourthly, they're conscious of their weakness. Fifthly, they're confounded by the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixthly, they are comforted by the words of Christ. What a wonderful thought that is. And seventhly, they are confirmed by a miracle. It's a mighty miracle, actually. Again, something I hadn't seen until you begin to do a bit of research. It was a wonderful privilege to be in Kent not so long ago. And a number of uh, uh, ministers from uh, the Gospel Standard section of uh, the uh, Strict Baptist uh, Brethren. And it was good to speak with them about this miracle. And one dear brother, I won't mention his name, confirmed that he had done all the research with all the maps all the distances, and this most certainly was a mighty miracle. It's almost an afterthought here, but what an important lesson it has for us. So we're going to proceed through these points as quickly and speedily as possible. He saw them toiling in rowing. Just to mention, the feeding of the 5,000, as you know, is the miracle that's mentioned, other than of course, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in all four gospel narratives. That should set us on warning that there are important truths here. There are important lessons here. In Matthew's parallel account, he has a verse which isn't recorded in Mark. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that Mark's not aware of it. In fact, if it was Peter, who many suggest it was, who was the source of Mark's information. Remember, Mark was with Peter in Rome, 1 Peter 5, verse 13, Marcus, my son. If we see that Mark's gospel narrative is effectively Peter's testimony through the pen of Mark, then we can almost hear Peter saying this. You know, we saw these things, we heard these things, we uh, heard eyewitnesses. And yet still we had to be upbraided. This is the last chapter of Mark. We had to be upbraided for our unbelief. And you can almost imagine Peter saying, don't be like me. Don't be like us. Don't see and hear. Don't witness. Don't hear eyewitnesses and still not believe. That's the most mistake we made. But right at the end, we believed, and the Lord Jesus Christ then worked with us, and great things were accomplished. But what was Matthew's purpose? Matthew's purpose, he wrote to the Jewish nation. They should have recognized their God. 
They should have understood that he was the king of the Jews, that he perfectly fulfilled all the prophecies, and yet they wouldn't see it. Not surprisingly, therefore, in Matthew's parallel account, we read this verse. Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. They saw it, and yet the nation didn't and still hasn't. But that's not what Mark records. Mark records, and we read, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Still Peter is speaking of himself. I saw the feeding of the 5,000, but I didn't believe it. My heart was hardened, and I even saw these miracles, and still my heart was hardened. And so we need to come to the scriptures. We believe, of course, it is the word of God. We don't expect contradictions and mistakes. We see a wonderful complementing of the various accounts. First of all, then, they were constrained. Both Matthew and Mark have that word. They were constrained to go by Christ. Why did he have to constrain them? Well, I would suggest, not wishing to be critical, of course, but that was not what they were expecting. It's not what they had been led to believe. We read, didn't we? They had just been out at the beginning of the uh, chapter, verses 7 to 14. They had gone out two by two, and they had seen wonderful things, and they'd done wonderful things, and they came back, and they were expecting to share with him of the great victories, of the great uh, uh, deliverances, of the casting out of demons, of the performing of wonderful things. And he had said to them, and we read it, didn't we? Come apart, come ye apart. And of course, there are wonderful things written on come ye apart, as we see, but uh, they were not going to go apart. In chapter 6 and verse 30, just let me alight on it, the apostles gathered to him, they said what they had done, and in verse 31, come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. I'm sure that's what they wanted to hear, and rest a while. And we can be very ready to quote that verse, but there is a slight problem, it seems to me, in quoting that verse, because they didn't rest a while, because the people immediately pressed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wouldn't turn the people away. He taught them, and therefore, notice in the same verse, verse 31 of Mark 6, for there were many coming and going, they couldn't even eat. Who couldn't even eat? That's the disciples couldn't even eat. So they go, in verse 32, away, looking for a private place. But in verse 33, as we read, the people saw and knew, outran them. And therefore, there was no coming apart and resting. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't come apart and rest. All I'm saying is that on this occasion, that wasn't what the Lord had for them. And when he said to them that they needed to go out and row across the Sea of Galilee, that was hardly their expectation. That would have been very difficult. It's rather like in the evening, isn't it? Perhaps you're settled and uh, ready for rest and sleep, and you're suddenly told of an emergency. And can you go and help? I remember one occasion being in this situation. It was when my sons had had some awful car crash. And I had to go down into Cornwall and see if all was well. It was, so not a problem at all. But it wasn't what I was expecting to do. And perhaps sometimes we need to be ready to hear the call of the Lord. 
Calvin writes, he had endeavored to obtain some relaxation, and that on his own account, as well as for the sake of his disciples. But when urgent duty calls him to additional labor, he willingly lays aside that private consideration and devotes himself to teaching the multitudes. Isn't that interesting? Well, not only does he deprive himself, he also deprives his disciples. And so they don't get their rest. Now, I might have mentioned this before, and I'm sure you know anyway, but Henry Morris, who's considered by many to be the father of the modern uh, creation science movement, uh, a wonderful godly man, I had the privilege to speak with him, to meet with him on two occasions, and now with the Lord, but when he went to glory, his family got his family Bible. And he had all sorts of notes in there. You may know this, so do forgive me if you do, but anyway... And it had a little note, and it says, uh, said, others may, you cannot. And there was some speculation as to what he meant by that. But I think this is probably a case in point. The disciples might say, just a minute, I thought we were going to rest a while. And all these people that you're sending home, what about us? Rowing across the Sea of Galilee, that's hardly what we expected. But you could think, others may, you cannot. It may have been in respect of some compromising behavior or action that was in their the brother's mind, but I think that's very appropriate. And on this point, because it is so relevant in days when perhaps we do find ease very, very much more preferable to action, and we can justify uh, a little uh, service rather than much service, this is Mr. Spurgeon. Are you in a field where there is much to be done and others are sitting down idly and lazily doing nothing? He never minces his words, does he, Spurgeon? We'd never get away with this, would we? We'd be told we were offending people. But anyway, he doesn't hold back. Others are sitting down idly and lazily doing nothing. Go at your work. And when the sweat stands upon your brow and you are bidden to say no, I can't, sorry, when you are bidden to stay, bidden to stop, say no, I cannot stop. I am one of Christ's. He had a baptism to be baptized with and so have I. I am one of Christ's. And when at any time there is anything to be done for his church and for his cross, do it. Remembering that you are one of Christ's. He constrained them to go. Sometimes we have to be constrained, don't we? Can't you come out and help us? Can't you do this? Is it really too much to do for the one who gave himself for you, who loved you, who went to the cross of Calvary? They were constrained. You remember Asaph, as he tells us in Psalm 73. He was envious of the foolish when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, others may be at home. Others may not be doing anything. There may be a phone call that needs making. There may be a visit that needs to be done. There may be words of encouragement that need to be given. Oh, someone else can do that. We're busy. We're tired. But is it not the case? Sometimes we have to be constrained. I don't know if you know, I'm sure you do, but we used to sing that chorus when I was uh, uh, in, in my youth a few years ago. There's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. Tis a task the master just for you has planned. Haste to do his bidding. Yield him service true. There's a work for Jesus 
None but you can do. Can't someone else do it? No. It's a work for Jesus only you can do. And if you don't do it, it won't be done. And sometimes it's a shame, isn't it? It's with the children. You want them to do something. Perhaps help the mother with the washing up or something. And they don't want to do it. And perhaps you encourage and promise and bribe and cajole and eventually you threaten. You constrain them to do it. And then they're very glad that they've made their mother happy. I understand it's whatever we understand by Father's Day today. And those who are fathers may have received a word of encouragement or a card or something from those who are their sons, if they are blessed with sons, to see the smile on the face, something that you've done. There's a work for Jesus. Well, others may, you cannot. And of course, this is going to turn out to be the kindest thing that could be done because the miracles that they're going to see will never be forgotten. I know we love to sing, don't we, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But you know, that hymn goes on with some very, very searching words. We never can know the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. And the writer goes on to talk about the great, rich, deep blessings, but they are for those who trust and obey. It's a very simple lesson. Sometimes we have to be constrained. But with hindsight, we say how thankful we were they were constrained to go. Now, secondly, they were constantly seen by Christ. Verse 48 of Mark chapter 6, we, uh, it's our text. He saw them toiling in rowing. You know, the seven local churches, Revelation 2 and 3, the words which are common to all seven, that means to every single local church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this gospel age, these things are true. I know thy works. And whether it's Beacon Park Baptist Church down in Plymouth or whether it's Gordon Road Evangelical Church here in Hailsham, the Lord Jesus Christ knows our works. I shouldn't make a shudder. We should be very glad because he's there to help He's there to encourage and comfort. He's there to bring us his word. But he knows our works. And therefore, we perhaps get this encouragement. He saw them. They were toiling in rowing, but he saw them. You'll know the hymn writer again. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. We're not unnoticed. We're not unseen. And it may be no other human heart can see the particular difficulties, trials, temptations, fears, etc., that the Lord Jesus Christ sees and he knows. Having mentioned, actually, Father's Day, of course, it comes to my mind that sometimes when I was a, a governor at school, I used to say in governor's meetings, I used to be a parent, you know, and I used to stop myself and think, just a minute, I'm still a parent. It's just that my children are no longer at school. You never stop being a parent, do you? And you have them in your heart. They may live hundreds of miles away. But you wouldn't say, well, out of sight, out of mind. You perhaps are more concerned because you want to know that all is well. How much more the Lord Jesus Christ our great head, our elder brother, he gave himself for us. Is he really not going to be interested or concerned? 
He saw them in rowing. Remember the promises. I am with you always. It might not be physically with us always, but his heart is most certainly with us always. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, as you probably know, I fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Wherever, and we've sung it, deep waters and fiery trials, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. What a wonderful, encouraging word. They were constantly seen by Christ. But I wonder what he did see. Now, it's hidden from us because Scripture is always so kind, but I imagine there was something going on like this. This isn't what we expected. What's gone wrong? How has this come to pass? We were going to come aside and we were going to rest a while. And here we are in this boisterous wind and we're getting nowhere fast. Whose fault was this? How have we been outmaneuvered? This, and we can imagine, as with the people in the Old Testament, murmuring. This is rather harder than we thought. This takes a bit more courage, a bit more staying power. We're not used to this. Perhaps they might have uh, looked at poor Peter and said, well, you usually stand up for us. Why didn't you stand up for us and say, not so. We'll go tomorrow, thank you very much, and we'll sleep first. You're sending the people away to rest. Why can't we take our rest too? And perhaps there was a little bit of recrimination going on. Perhaps they weren't all encouraging one another. They were wondering how it was that they got into this mess. Wonder what he saw. They should have been having fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they were out on a deserted, boisterous, wind-blown sea, making little progress. We'll come to that in a moment. Do you remember um, that wonderful promise that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to all the disciples, not just to Peter? It's one of the reasons why um, we love the authorised version. If you have another, please don't uh, uh, think I speak against it. But the authorised version makes a particular point of telling us when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to one person as opposed to many. So in Luke chapter 22 and verses 13 and 31, when the Lord says... Satan hath desired to sift you like wheat. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. That's all the disciples. Now he's going to turn to Peter and say, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. But if we had a version which didn't distinguish, we would read this. Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. And I have prayed for you that when your faith fails, so when you, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. It sounds as though he's just speaking to Peter. But no, he's speaking to everyone. Satan desires to sift you all as wheat. And then he turns to Peter and says, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art strengthened. That's a very helpful insight because it means that Satan will seek to sift us all as wheat. And this is one of the ways in which he sifts. That we may think, well, this is a little bit unreasonable. That uh, we shouldn't have to do this. Can't someone else do this? Can't we pay someone else to do it? Can't something else be a little more amenable to us? 
that we could do for the Lord. Now he constrained them to go, and he saw them. He was looking from heaven. Thirdly, they were commended to God in prayer. This is a wonderful picture. If we get it in our mind's eye, let me just try and uh, put it across here, that uh, he departed, verse 46, into a mountain to pray. He sees them tawning in rowing, verse 48. And I think the picture that here's the mountainside and there's the Lord Jesus. He's on his own. He can see them. They're supremely unconscious of that fact. And they are toiling in rowing. And it's dark and it's wet. And they're not making much progress. The sea is against them. The wind is strong. And yet he prays for them. Isn't that wonderful? That's why we sang the last hymn. It's a lovely hymn, I think. When I have erred and gone astray, afar from thine in wisdom's way, and see no guiding, cheering ray, then, Saviour, plead for me. When Satan, by my sins made bold, strives from thy cross to loose my hold, then with thy pitying arms enfold, then, Saviour, plead for me. And we can see the Saviour pleading as he sees them toiling in rowing, that they will continue that they won't perhaps resort to uh, worse than simply complaining, that they will endure, that they will continue. He intercedes. He ever lives to intercede for them. Do you remember in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there in the house of the interpreter, uh, Christian or graceless, but now he has grace, of course, he is uh, there and he sees this fire and Someone's trying to put it out with buckets of water, and it's not going out. Rather, it's getting stronger. And uh, Christian doesn't understand this. So Mr. Interpreter, he takes him around the back and shows him. And what's happening at the back? Well, at the back, there's this person. We believe it would be the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, but with buckets of oil. We perhaps better would even think of it as paraffin, throwing it on the fire from the back, unseen, as John Bunyan says. And therefore, the fire is getting stronger, even though... With buckets of water being doused on it. What is that? Well, that's grace. That's strength. That's the blessing from the Lord. And their fears and their complaints were not overcoming that needful grace that they were receiving. A wonderful picture indeed. When weary in the Christian race, we sang. Far off appears our resting place. They were not getting to the shore. And fainting, I mistrust thy grace. Then, Saviour, plead for me. We might almost think that that was written with this account in mind, mightn't we? He saw them and he commended them to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a hymn. I think it's only in one hymn book, but you're probably going to uh, correct me. It's soldier, soldier fighting in the world's great strife. On yourself relying, fighting for your life. Trust a self no longer. Trust a Christ, he's stronger. I can all things, all things do through Christ, which strengtheneth me. It's a wonderful hymn. It's... uh, uh, as, well, it's certainly found in a particular hymn book if you're interested. Perhaps the disciples were saying, shall we give up? Shall we go back? Shall we wait till the morning and try again? But the Lord Jesus Christ interceded for them. He prayed for them, however exhausted 
Fourthly, they were conscious of their weakness. Now, this is where it is just remarkable. He comes to them in the fourth watch of the night. Now, if we do look at Matthew's account, there may appear to be a contradiction. When it's evening, they need to be fed and then sent to their homes. And then we read, when even was come. So, well, there can't be two evenings. Well, actually, there are two evenings. Evening was when it gets dark, and evening was 6 p.m. There were four watches in the night, as you probably know, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. First watch, second watch, 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch, midnight to 3 in the morning. Might say the thunderstorm and the lightning, which I understand some didn't notice, but if you did, I think that was in the second and third watch of last night. And the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. When did the Lord Jesus Christ come? He came in the fourth watch, we read. What does that mean? It means that they were toiling in rowing for at least nine hours. Might have been nearer to 12 hours, but it was in the fourth watch of the night. And there's no contradiction at all because it's there in each narrative. He comes in verse 48, the fourth watch of the night. If you have a margin reference, you'll see it actually tells you that's three till six a.m. And they set off at 6 p.m. the previous evening. Isn't that staggering? They'd not had any sleep at all. And they were pretty weary to start with. And they'd been expecting to come away, come aside, and rest a while. They must have been near their wit's end, we may say. They were conscious of their own weakness. In John chapter 6, in his account, we read that they had rowed for about 25 or 30 furlongs. The experts tell us that would be three to four miles. That sounds like a long way to me. But when you consider it's over five miles to get to uh, their destination, then they were just about over halfway, but not likely to arrive anytime soon. This was not a promising situation. And they could have asked all sorts of questions. I can imagine what what I would have asked, what I do often ask, perhaps you do as well. If only I had more strength. Don't you ever ask that? Why do I get tired so quickly? Why do you seem to run out of enthusiasm? Why do you need stirring and constraining? Why is that? But you might remember the examples that we have in Scripture. Do you remember David, for example, when he fought Goliath? What an amazing individual. He didn't say, I need more strength, did he? He was pretty confident he had more than enough as it was. Do you remember what he said? Thou comest unto me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come unto thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You know, we may have a Goliath of a challenge or circumstance to face but if we come in the name of the Lord we needn't fear smallness or weakness we mustn't think we're outgunned by the wisdom or the resources of an unbelieving world we come in the name of the Lord David didn't say oh if only I was bigger if only I had more muscles if only I was uh, more trained in fighting skills no he had everything he needed he came in the name of the Lord. I wonder if they also thought, as we often think, don't we? If only we had more numbers. 
And it's good to see such a number here. I think this is more than I've ever seen, but someone will doubtless correct me afterwards. Always very encouraging to see increasing numbers. But are we dependent on numbers? Well, do you remember Jonathan and the armor bearer? Always a good account if you uh, are fearing that we're too small to do something. Someone says, oh, perhaps we could uh, deliver an invitation or a calendar, or we could do something around all the houses here in Hailsham. You say, oh, we'd need more numbers to do that. We need a lot more young people to do that. Then think of Jonathan and the armor bearer. It's always good to recourse to uh, 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Remember, Jonathan was getting a bit irritable. Saul was doing nothing. He was sitting under a pomegranate tree, actually. And there was the enemy. There were the Philistines. Someone must do something. So he says to his armor bearer, come with me. We'll go up and we'll see. If the Lord's with us, then we will accomplish much. If he's not, we won't. So they go up. You know the account. And the end of it is, Jonathan says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And Jonathan goes up. He is given a very clear encouragement from the Lord. And the battle is won for the Israelites. The Lord is not constrained or restrained to save by many or by few. And then, of course, we come to Gideon. Perhaps this is where Jonathan learned this lesson. Gideon, no, 22,000 is too many. You'll say you did this. 10,000, no, that's too many. 300, that's right. That way, no one will say you did this. I will have done this. And remember Gideon with his uh, pictures and his lamps and his cries. And, of course, a great victory was won just with 300. And that's when, of course, Gideon carried on destroying the enemies of the Lord and he was faint yet pursuing. You know, it may be that we are witnessing to someone who we live next to or work with, someone, perhaps a family member who doesn't believe, and we think, well, this is just getting nowhere. But no, we must believe. We must think that the truth of the word is more powerful than all the armaments of this vain and passing world. Perhaps we're seeking to look after uh, a number of people. Perhaps we're seeking to be an encouragement. Perhaps we find the work is getting us down. But no, we have been given all that we need. And it may be gathering children and teenagers. And, of course, uh, many sections of the community, I suspect, are very challenging. In my experience, for what it's worth, which is probably not a lot, I think teenage boys are probably as challenging as any. And uh, it's very good to be able to gather them on Friday night. And people say, you can't keep doing this for much longer. Well, I thought that years ago. But the Lord knows. And if it's of his will, we will be able to do it. We may be conscious of our weakness. But you remember Paul's testimony? When I am weak, then I am strong. I will rather glory in infirmities that the power may be seen to be of God. Now, very quickly, fifthly, they were confounded by his presence. In verse 48, he comes to them. He saw them tawning and rowing, and he comes to them walking on the sea, and he makes as if he would have gone by. 
This is where Matthew has Peter climbing out of the boat and walking on the water while he looks at the Lord. He's safe, but when he sees the uh, boisterous uh, and the uh, crashing waves, he begins to sink. But Mark doesn't have that. What he has is it never occurred to them that Christ would come to them. It was very nice, actually, to be somewhere on Tuesday where I hadn't been for many years, and I was introduced to an elderly lady called Rhoda. And I always remember Rhoda, as I'm sure you do. Remember, they're all praying for Peter in prison. There's a knock on the door, John Mark's house, mother's house, and Rhoda goes to the door. They're all praying for Peter because he's to be killed the following day. Then she runs back and says, Peter's at the door. And they don't believe her. You must have seen a spirit. It can't possibly be Peter. But they were praying for him. And, of course, the Lord is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Why did it not occur to them that Christ may come in their hour of need, that he would strengthen them, that he would appear for them? And he did. And so, eventually, when they overcome their fear, they... uh, Uh, were troubled in verse 50, but immediately he talked with them. I wonder what he said. Be uh, at peace. Peace be with you. It is I. Be not afraid. Though unperceived by mortal sense, the hymn writer puts it, faith sees him ever near. Begone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By faith, let me wrestle And he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. Don't be confounded. Expect the Lord's presence, his strengthening arm, his calming presence, his encouraging voice, and especially from the scripture. We love Dr. Hawker down in Plymouth. Hawker of Charles, as he's known. He has a wonderful picture of a blind man who's never seen But when he feels, we can perhaps identify with this in this warm weather, at least we could do when the sun was out, that when the face feels the warmth, we know where that's coming from. We can't see it. He's perhaps never seen the sun, but he can feel it. And in a sense, don't we feel in the right sense of that word, the cheering, warming power and presence and promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to encourage us in our labors, in our toils, in our endeavors. Well, quickly, they were comforted by the words of Christ. Be of good cheer, verse 50. It is I, for I will be with thee in trouble to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. We shouldn't be surprised that the Lord will be with us if we're doing his work. Do you remember at the end of Mark's gospel narrative again? The disciples went preaching everywhere, as they'd been commissioned to do, preach the gospel to every creature. They preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Final verse of Mark's gospel narrative. We shouldn't be surprised if we're doing the Lord's work, that the Lord is working with us. In fact, we should chastise ourselves really if we doubt it because he's promised and if he's promised it's for our comfort and for our our encouragement i will be with you always even to the end of the world as matthew finishes and in verse 51 notice he went into the ship and the wind ceased the words of christ and the winds ceased what a wonderful thing 
that is. Well, very finally, as we close, a mighty miracle. What is this miracle? Well, again, we'd have to have a look at John to uh, make sure we understand it. Let me just read it quickly. This is John chapter 6 and verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. I remember when I first read that, thinking, it can't mean immediately. It might mean that compared to nine hours toiling in rowing, it was as if time flew by in the presence of Christ, and suddenly the rowing was no longer toiling. It was a delight. But no, it means immediately. It means without the passage of time. Mr. Hendrickson writes, there are four miracles here. One, Jesus walks on the sea. Secondly, as Matthew uh, recalls, he causes Peter to walk on the sea. Thirdly, he reveals himself as master of the storm. And this is how William Hendrickson puts it. He conquers even space, for when he enters the boat, it is on the shore all at once. Now, that's remarkable, isn't it? What an encouragement. Without Christ, perhaps their faith was tested, they were toiling in rowing, but he still saw them and he knew them and he interceded for them. But when Christ comes to them and they see him and know him, it's almost by the click of a finger, they're on the shore at the destination. A mighty miracle. Do you know, we live in days when in certain circles people think that if we see lots of miracles, there'll be wonderful expansions in the work of uh, Almighty God and we need signs and wonders. Isn't this an interesting lesson? There were no signs and wonders given until there had been 9 to 12 hours of toiling in rowing. The Lord may reward our patience and faith with miracles. That's wonderful. But not if there's not the patience the toiling and the rowing. Well, the lessons on our time has gone. First of all, obedience. Be compelled and constrained. We didn't want to do this, but how glad we are we did. There's a work for Jesus. Don't find a hundred reasons not to do it. Find a reason why you must do it because he has commanded. I think secondly, don't presume upon Christ for miracles. He takes us as we are. What are we? Earthen vessels. And yet he uses us, that the power and the glory may be seen to be of him. What an example this is. And thirdly, never doubt the promises of God. He has promised his presence. He has promised his power. And they had to learn this, but I can't imagine they would ever forget it. They were constrained to go, they were constantly in Christ's view. They were commended to God by Christ. They were conscious of their own weakness. They were confounded by the appearance of Christ, but comforted by his words. And their faith was confirmed by a mighty miracle. Well, may we know our Savior's presence, promise, and power. May we be prepared to toil in rowing wherever the Lord sends us. And may we rejoice to see him and all his glory. Amen. Well, let's sing our final hymn. It is number 774, Go, Labor On. Number 774.
that day, O Lord, help us that we may indeed have strength to endure, purpose to pursue, and may we know the presence and power and promise of our glorious Savior, helping, upholding, interceding, representing, granting needful strength and grace sufficient until that day when we shall rest forever in that glorious heavenly place. Keep us then, O Lord. Do forgive us our sins and be with us until we meet again. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.